Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that stepped away for two months only to see that Bangladesh had beaten the World Test Champions in their backyard, India losing their captain across all formats, and England's Ashes campaign disintegrating midway through the series. Well, the last one is not totally surprising. I'm your host Benny and listener, we are back. 2022 is here and so are we. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. If you're a long-time listener, Welcome back. We at The Last Week are excited to return and doing what we love. That is talking all things cricket with guests who bring so much knowledge, passion, and unique perspectives that enriches our understanding of the game, which is why we are excited to be nominated for the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards in the Best Cricket Podcast category. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do us a favor, go to sportspodcastawards.com, register, and vote for us. If nothing else, it is a big encouragement for us to continue bringing you cricket content of the highest quality. Now, back to the show. To kick off our first episode of the year, we have a returning guest in Dan Weston. For those of you who may not know, uh, Dan is a UK-based cricket analyst who brings a tremendous depth of knowledge to the game. We spoke with him to take the pulse of English cricket as it navigates some perilous times both on and off the field. Uh, but before that, here's a brief snippet of a chat I had earlier with my co-host, Mike. So guys, what we're going to do uh, starting this episode is uh, the first of hopefully many recurring segments uh, called What's on Your Mind? Uh, basically, your host will take a few minutes before uh, the main segment of each episode to kind of just talk about what's on our mind. So uh, I feel like we have plenty to start off this year and this episode. So let's start with you, Mike. What's on your mind? Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to get over the India-South Africa series. Um, right. That was a really great series with both teams, you know, fighting it out. Um, have to say a little disappointed that India did not uh, win in South Africa. I think it was definitely 
their you know best chance considering it was a, a slightly inexperienced South African team even though they were obviously very yeah. gifted um yeah i don't know that there is an away cycle left for away test cycle left for kohli ashwin uh, maybe even jareja they're all right. you know ashwin is 35 the others are 33 so um even rohit is 35 i think so i think i don't know if there's a away cycle left for all of them to come back to south africa so i think that will be definitely the biggest disappointment because i think with the world test championship final it was slightly different where you know we understood there was a one off game and you know these things happen but for them to go to south africa twice and uh, in 2018 and and this year and and uh, you know compete both times but not being able to go over the line i think that'll just definitely remain a big disappointment i think uh, for me to say massive disappointment would be an understatement Uh, but it is a sign of just how far indian cricket has come because i remember when i started following cricket uh, in the late 90s and whenever india toured south africa a series victory forget a series victory a single test <laughs> victory i would have been so glad to take it and so when india would win those rare one off tests for me that was like that that's enough for me uh, but it's a sign of how far india has come along in test cricket that them not winning the series seems like a failure and it it is a failure because with the team that they had and for all the reasons that you mentioned um this was you know india's best chance of you know claiming the series um so i agree i think it's uh very disappointing i couldn't even watch the game live because i refuse to watch the game live because if i'm <laughs> going to get up at 3:30 to watch the game i want to be happy <laughs> <laughs> I want the day to go well and I don't want to be seeing India lose to start off my day. Um so I was just following the live scores and when you know when India lost I was just like okay all right just moving on and I don't want to think about this any further. Um but I mean it is what it is, you know. Um ultimately I think India did well to compete. Uh, like you said a, probably a raw inexperienced team but they have a couple of really good players in Keegan Peterson and Marco Jansen and i don't think there's any shame in losing to a better team in a hard fought okay. series i just wish the batsmen came to the party for india and given the likes you know like kl rahul mayank agarwal pujara rahani uh kohli rishabh pant I think that's a pretty good even with the absence of Rohit Sharma and Jadeja uh yeah. I think this was still a good enough batting side and should have been able to deal with the likes of Rabada Ingidi Jansen and Olivier so yeah I think it's a a missed opportunity and I don't know when it's going to come around again but yeah that 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 was very <laughs> disappointing to say the least um what's on your mind Benny well i was going to talk about something that was on my mind well for a long time you know particularly um like india's batting failures uh particularly pujara and rahane's struggles uh but obviously news broke in the last couple of hours that has completely taken over my timeline on social media and um mind space for me is uh Virat Kohli stepping down as test skipper to go along with his um I don't want to say step down I don't think he stepped down from limited overs he's probably removed 
um, I think it is unfortunate. <laughs> and I don't want to go into conspiracies because obviously we'll never know the, the facts. You know, Kohli put out a nice, you know, very uh, professional statement uh, about his, you know, pride uh, of leading India for the, you know, all these years. Um, but it was time for him to step down. Um, I mean, I feel there's something behind the scenes, you know, with the BCCI and um, Kohli and probably even just players. It just, it, it, it takes me back to the old days, you know, where there was a lot of intrigue and there's a lot of, you know, like who's, you know, who's in which camp. And it, it, I, I, I'm really sad that it is kind of going back to that. And I really hope I'm wrong. And it's just genuinely, Virat, you know, he's, he feels like he has done his part. Um, I personally think he could have stayed on for a few more years, probably mentoring leader, future leaders uh, for the Indian team. And, you know, I, I, I still think he, he's definitely been the best Indian captain that I've seen uh, ever since I started following cricket. Um, and he brought a certain passion, a, a, a very good determination to the Indian side, um, and you know, like like I, like I mentioned earlier, the, the very fact that we consider this South African series result as a disappointment is really because of Kohli and the way he molded his team that we as fans kind of expected, you know, with this bowling attack and um, the kind of drive and determination that they have showed in the past years. So he 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 leaves a good legacy behind. Um, there are other things that were not always palatable uh, with Kohli, but when it comes to leading the team, I, I thought he had, did a tremendous job and his skills in that will be missed. Um, but anyway, I hope this brings out Brad Kohli, the batsman, a more focused, uh, great, that I feel like we've been missing out in the last few years. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, uh, getting the team from number seven to number one um, under his captaincy was definitely, you know, a really, really great era for Indian cricket. Uh, we've, you know, with the focus on fitness, we've started producing a lot more quality fast bowlers who can bowl 25 hours in a day. Right. And that's been part of, you know, the reason why our hopes and our chances abroad have, have improved significantly. Um, I think it's a good time to transition, though. I, I feel like um, as much as I would have loved to watch him more, um, the num there's a number of home tests in the upcoming year. And if, uh, I mean, again, this is me just reading from far, but he was always a big fan of MS Dhoni and, and his captaincy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things yeah. that uh, Dhoni did was he left um, on in, when they were touring Australia and he said, you know what, we have a big home season coming up. It's probably a good time for Virat to take over. And, and that's when he stepped away. So maybe he's just taking something, you know, from uh, Tony's book and copying that because he realizes that uh, realistically, these, these people, as I was saying, are only, you know, a couple of years, maybe three to four years away from retirement. And yeah. it's probably a good time to transition to somebody newer or at least uh, have KL as, as vice captain. Um, taking on more responsibility. I think it's going to be a, a, a rough curve for the next generation of um, Indian cricketers and leaders within the team, because I think 
we almost, well, I don't want to say we underestimated or underappreciated, you know, Virat Kohli and Ravi Shastri, but the expectations of Indian fans are always high. It, it's always been high, even before Kohli, uh, but especially with, you know, the kind of performances that India have been consistently been able to put overseas. And I mean, even in, in this series, even though India lost, you know, we genuinely believed we could win till, you know, the last day of the game. Um, and I don't know how seamlessly that is going to continue with whoever the next captain is, whether it be Rohit Sharma or if the selectors want to take a kind of a longer term approach with KL Rahul. Um, I just don't see the same kind of success or results. And again, this is probably the, the pessimist in me, uh, but I think it's important to re remember as you know, Indian cricket fans that we probably have to be patient, <laughs> you know, with the new leadership with Rahul Dravid um, and whoever the next captain is, at least in tests, um, it's, it's not going to be seamless. And we may have to be ready for some pain <laughs> before, you know, um, we start, before we resume winning more consistently. I, I think that's true when a number of these, the current batch start retiring right now, if it's just a change in captain and the 11, you know, more or less, or the 15 and more or less stays the same, then I don't think there'll be that big a dip. But yeah, I, I do think there's going to be a transition at some point, um, likely a couple of years down the line. And then we'll we'll really miss this era. And and, uh, and and it's funny because I was thinking about the 2003 World Cup. And for some reason, I was thinking about Ashish Nehra's six for 23. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking, oh yeah, that was a great spell. It's been what, 10 years? I was like, wait, it's been almost 20 years. And yeah. I'm sure we're gonna look back at this era <laughs> and think, geez, that, that team 20 years ago was was dynamite and and we're gonna miss it. I think the 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 myth of a team, the the aura of a team gets built over the years. And I think that's what is going to happen with this team and, and deservingly so they've they played some outstanding cricket. So Dan, I'm, I'm always fascinated by postmortems in cricket, you know, obviously not in the literal sense, uh, but every international cricket board, you know, they do this to some extent after an unsuccessful major series or a tournament. Uh, there's a lot of talk about re-examining the structure of domestic cricket or taking another look at the pitches, uh, identifying the right players. Uh, for a long-term goal in mind. And obviously for this episode, we are going to limit ourselves to uh, English cricket. And as they lurch towards the end of another disastrous Ashes uh, tour down under, I just wanted to take a very cold and dispassionate look at what really ails England in the long format. So please help us understand you know, the debate over the structure of English cricket, particularly the number of teams. I know there are about 18 teams across two divisions. And I've been hearing yeah. and reading, you know, about how this is probably leading to dilution of talent. Um, is that analysis fair or is there more to it than that? 
I, I think that it's both fair and there's a lot more to it than that as well. So, okay. um, for example, the eight, 18 teams, if you've got 18 teams, that's and probably on average one and a half overseas players per team. You're out two, but most teams don't, a lot of teams don't have two. So that's that's ballpark nine and a half domestic players per per team. So you're looking at about 170 domestic out uh, domestic players playing a round of matches. So that's 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 one, it's a good talent pool to choose from, but two, obviously it's more diluted than say the Sheffield Shield, which has got fewer teams and uh, uh, no real overseas players. So you've got you've got a different a different problem in that there's a lot of, there is dilution of talent but there's also a lot of good players as well but division one i think is a very high standard compared to a lot of a lot of a lot of leagues worldwide uh red Bull leagues division two is a little bit weaker um but the talent is diluted by don't buy into it being a problem for example if you've got in english football you don't if you're going to perform badly in the world cup there's 96, there's 96 teams in, or 92 teams, sorry, in the, in the four, four top four divisions in England, all professional. Right. People don't say, oh, well, let's call division four, you know, or whatever, league, it's actually called league two, but it's the fourth division. Uh, they don't say, oh, we'll get rid of that because the talent's diluted. No, they just make sure they pick the right players from the top division. And, and, and I think that that's kind of generally, actually England do have quite a big bias towards picking players from division one. So I don't, I don't really see that they have undervalued that area. The problem I think was, is to do with selection, um, okay. strategy, and I don't. I'm not a massive buyer of the fact that seasons played at different times or wrong times or whatever. And we have to also be cognizant of the fact that English domestic teams play more Red Bull cricket than any other team in any other country worldwide. There's more matches, right. um, so there's 14 matches in in a, in a standard season. Uh, there hasn't been in the last two two years because of COVID, but in the standard season, which they're reverting to again this year, there's going to be 14 matches per team minimum. So, so there's that's 56 days of rebel cricket. That's more than any other country. We have to be aware that the that our players are playing more rebel cricket than any other country. So they should actually be pretty well prepared for the Test match arena. The the problem is, I think, is really regards incentives and incentivizing teams to produce players who are suitable to play for England. So. I, I have a kind of a favourite phrase, if you like, in that if you're a county, you're better off having 11 guys who are almost good enough to play for England rather than internationals. Because you know that if you have an 11 players who are almost good enough to play for England, then um, you're going to have them every week and, and you don't lose into international cricket. Whereas like a team like Surrey, for example, they they lose a lot of players to England and it's very difficult for them to put a consistent lineup together. And I think that's kind of borne out by their results to some degree because you know they haven't won a lot of trophies in the last 10 or 20 years despite having i think most people would, would acknowledge that one of the biggest budgets in in english cricket so that's a big problem so it's almost like being successful as a county is virtually the same as being mutually exclusive to producing players for england at the same time so you have different objectives so right. county if they want to win matches they might pick a uh, 75 mile an hour guy who can take 50 wickets in a season on green tops but that guy is never going to play for England so what's what's the point of of them if you're looking at counties as a feeder club to England there isn't really any but it's going to win that county matches so those guys are going to be preferred say to a raw player who's maybe you know 90 mile an hour pacer but it's got no control and 
goes to four and over when he's young and need, lacks the control, but has maybe the raw the raw ingredients to be refined to be a test player. But there's no incentive to play those because they're going to create they're going to cause you to lose matches because they're going to go four and over rather than two and a half and over and take less wickets and stuff. So you're you're in this position where the objectives of the counties are very unaligned with the objectives for England. So what right. I, what I, what I wrote about before is. I think that the ECB need to give the counties better incentives to produce players for England, because then that way, that gives the counties a reason for that development. You know, Joe Root said something the other day uh, when talking about the team that was selected for these uh, for the ongoing Ashes. He said this team is the pick of the best players from county cricket, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of like touching on what we were talking about as far as the number of teams itself. Do you see a majority of uh, players coming from a certain number of counties, like just three or four, or do you think it's more evenly spread out? So, first of all, I think I want to make the clear point that that's just Jerry's opinion. That's not a given. That's not necessarily the case. Um, He's got, as far as I'm aware, no evidence to actually prove that that's the case. Um, So... Uh, he's just going on on what he thinks. But I don't understand how he really knows that because he barely plays county cricket himself. So so I'm not <laughs> sure he's actually got a particularly a particular opinion that's worth taking a great deal of note from. Um, the the as far as the distribution of players is concerned, if you look at a lot of the players in the current squads, the many will be from like the big Test match ground teams like Yorkshire, Lancashire, Surrey, Notts, but. Some of those players originally came from youth academies somewhere else and then had to get a move to those teams to kind of put themselves in a bit more spotlight to get picked by England. So a good example for that would be Stuart Broad, who came through Leicestershire's academy. Um, and then so did Harry Gurney, who played a bit as well and played in the IPL as well. And then they both went to Notts, which is the kind of the, the closest test match ground county from Leicestershire. But... Also, some a team like Durham, who were the last team to be admitted to the county championship about 20 years ago. So there were 17 counties, and then Durham came along and made it 18. They produced guys like Ben Stokes, Mark Wood, Steve Harmison, Paul Collingwood, despite being you know, the last county to be admitted and basically started from scratch. So it's kind of a, a very broad, broad cross-section of the counties producing players for England. And I think that's another reason why I'm really much in favour of the 18 teams because actually there's the vast majority of players who've played for England over, say, the last five, ten years. There will be ties to at least, you know, almost every county. So in some way, shape or form, you know. So there's maybe only one or two, I would say, that that haven't had a tie to any county, i.e. they're not being produced by the academy or played for them at some period of time, be it on a loan or permanent basis. But generally speaking... They, there will be someone who's played for pretty much every county. Um, the problem for the smaller counties is that the players often move on because they think that they have greater exposure in Division One or a big county. And they're probably right to some degree because, like I said before, they should be picking players from Division One to play for England because it's a higher standard, you know. In football, you don't pick players from the Championship to play for England, you pick players from the Premier League. So, so it should be just the same kind of scenario where the higher standard is going to have the, the greater quality of player. But... I'm not sure that the selection process helps in that area because really no stone unt- should be left unturned given how tough it is to find the best record talent in England. Are there good players in Division 2? We don't really know. So 
you know, you got a guy like Zach Crawley who's averaging like ballpark 30 for Kent in his career. But right. we don't know that we don't know that he's better or worse than someone like Tom Haynes, who's averaging like 50 odd in for Sussex and who'll be playing in Division Two next year, or or Jake Libby, who's got a low runs for two years in a row. So we don't know if he's any better or worse because you can't compare them. But I would suggest that a guy averaging 50 in Division Two is probably quite a bit better than a guy averaging 30 in Division One on a general basis. But that doesn't mean that that guy who's averaging 30 in Division One has not got more upside right. in the future. But that's just yeah, at that point in time. Right. By that yardstick, though, I mean, someone like Darren Stevens, you know, 45 years <laughs> yeah, of yeah. old, very yep, successful. Yeah, yeah. And I think I uh, I read somewhere recently that, you know, a bunch of Australian players who, who play in county cricket have this WhatsApp group called Steve-O's going to get you. Um, I think, <laughs> I I got, <laughs> I think I, I'm fairly sure that's that's right. So how do you interpret that? Because, you know, maybe it's unfair that we look at age and think, well, if this person is doing well, maybe the quality of the opposition isn't that great. If a 45-year-old person can kind of take wickets and score runs quite comfortably. So I'm trying to understand, you know, do you think that indicates a sign of the quality of players? in, uh, Or is, is it just that uh, Darren Stevens is a really good cricketer, just keeping age aside? Yeah, um, so I don't know if you know his story completely, but he was a batter until he was like 30. And then he started bowling and got a load of wickets and has been an all-rounder for the last 15 years from the age of like 30 to 45. Um, I would say that Darren Stevens is just a complete one-off. So okay. there's no one else like him in pro cricket in England, and probably pro cricket in the world. Um, I think there's kind of too much on social media and stuff about him being kind of an indicative of this narrative that the county cricket is weak. I don't think, I don't see that at all. He's been amazing at, year right. in, year out. Uh, I don't think it at all means that the county cricket's weak. I think it just means that he's a total outlier. And I would say probably the county championship player of the century so far. But so the, do you think he should think be of, called to the English I side? Of, well, I think a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, People probably say that he's also very self-motivated as well and just desperate to play, loves playing cricket. So he's right. he's someone who's obviously got a lot of drive, even at an old age for a player. Which should he play? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, uh, it's difficult to say that he wouldn't do worse than some of the other guys. <laughs> who have been it's a very low um, bar. Yeah. Would he be more effective than, say, a Mark Wood in English conditions? There's probably a reasonable argument to be said for that because English conditions will probably suit Darren Stevens more than they suit Mark Wood. Would Mark Wood be better suited to bowling in Australia? Yeah, almost certainly. So again, that's the horses for courses kind of scenario where I think Stuart Broad's kind of mentioned it recently. How about we pick the team that's best suited to win the, the match at hand rather than right. thinking about two or four years' time about this Ashes? Because at the moment, England are like bottom of the World Test Championship, so this long-term planning has not, not served them well at all. So maybe if they want look to win matches and then build confidence from that and have, have a confident team with players who are kind of settled in their roles, then, then that might be, be the way forward. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that Darren Stevens is that player, but I'm saying that, you know, you would probably back him to take wickets in English conditions in Test cricket because he's, as you say, the Australian overseas guys have all, all been got by Darren Stevens. So he's obviously getting a, a high calibre of player out on a regular basis in English conditions. So 
So why not? Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a good batter as well. He'd probably bat like seven for him. Um, right. I could, I could genuinely, I think he would be no worse than a lot of players that be. Not you saying know, he's a man for the future, obviously. <laughs> You know, but piggybacking on what Stuart Broad said the other day about keeping an eye on long term and sacrificing results in the short term, do you think that's really the reason for you? Know, is that how you would say Ollie Pope and Zach Crawley they're the victims of that approach? Would that be fair to say? Well, their their, their backgrounds are both very different, Crawley and Pope, because Crawley has certainly not set the world alight in county cricket. Whereas Ollie Pope's basically dominated county cricket, so you can you can say that Ollie Pope kind of deserves a long opportunity to prove in Test cricket that he's capable of making that transition. Whereas there's probably less of ev less evidence that Crawley deserves such a long opportunity because he hasn't really succeeded at county cricket. Now that's not at all saying that he won't be a good Test player in the future, but we're talking about here and now. I don't know he got he's played these things in the in the last in the last test, but you know, so he's averaged 10 basically before that for the for the last year. So, you know, he may well be a great player in the future, but is he but anybody the best who can now? No, pretty maybe not. Yeah, but anybody who can score 267 against a, a Pakistan yeah. attack. You would think yeah. that that person has a lot of potential that's worth backing. Yeah, but that was like two years ago now, right? Fair enough. <laughs> uh, and that's 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 the thing. He, I know what you're saying, but when you're looking, if you, you know, even with that two six seven, look at his average. Right. Yeah. So maybe that was just we don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's indicative of his potential. Maybe it's a he's batted like the top one percent of his bell curve of expected outcomes or something like that you know right yeah so let's dig a little deeper into that um you know one of the things that we noticed that you know like in south africa uh we know that the vast majority of the players come from private schools and um i know a little bit about you know that kind of culture as far as cricket is concerned in england as well I know that before Zach Crawley, I believe that was Andrew Strauss. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, Alistair Cook as well. So there's this lineage of uh, English players who come out of private schools and in all, you know, most probably they end up becoming captains of the national team as well. Um, so how does how does that really fit into it? Is, is that is that in any way linked to the current state of English uh, test cricket? Um it's tough to say with any certainty um you know at a lot of you know non-private schools cricket's probably not focused on sports like football would be more prioritized um now i think there's a lot of factors at play uh some of the factors which i think contribute to to more private school educated people playing for england or playing county cricket is probably that there's better facilities at those schools uh, the, as I said, the private schools are more likely to play cricket or to take it really seriously and also kind of I think that a lot of students at private schools are likely to be more able to get private coaching because they've got wealthier parents so you know the private coaching might be done by like a, a local pro or county pro or whatever and then if they've got talent then they're earmarked kind of thing and then it's easier for them to kind of project, pro progress through the pathway so 
I think a lot of it is to do with school sports as well. So, you know, not every school will play cricket. It's not, you know, England's not not like India where everyone wants to play cricket. England is, right. you know, football's more popular. So, ultimately, a player can only develop if they've got the facilities and the coaching to do that. And I think a lot of that's that's where private schools have got that be- the better better facilities and, and the willingness to coach more than more than just the uh, state schools right um so we've talked a little bit about the existing structure then but uh also walk us through what's changed over the last decade um you know i know one of the things that changed was the odi competition was reduced to 40 overs which led to you know higher scoring and and eventually yeah. that world cup win uh but what are the other key changes that have happened over the past decade um, there's not really that much. So the, the the list A competition has actually gone back down, gone back up to 50 overs now, uh, in line with with international cricket. Um, I'm not massively sure that the change to 40 overs really had a gigantic impact on England winning the World Cup. I think that it was as much a just the fact that it was like a golden generation of white ball talent that 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 came came through at the right time. And and, and there's there's a lot of reasons for that. So. I've read studies previously about if if the if a player in any sport is like a pioneer of 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 their sport, then it kind of creates a lot of players coming through the system who want to imitate them. So maybe that's also like an effect of Kevin Peterson trying to be very very you know unorthodox and attacking, and you know the young players growing up and thinking I want to be like him. I don't want to be like you know an Alistair Cook kind of player who's you know much more solid and a test match player they might want to be like Kevin Peterson and play switch hits and and tee off for sixes and stuff like that you know and play with flair and then that's created like this group of players who who are supremely talented at white ball cricket and innovators themselves and I think there's this yeah so that's 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 one thing about the 50 over competition now that's turned into more of a development competition now because it's run concurrently with the, the hundred so, whilst the hundred is being played, any player who's not selected by the for the by hundred team is eligible to play the domestic fifty over competition. Um, but the problem last year for that particular competition was that whenever there was an injury in in the hundred, then the next best batch of players got picked by hundred teams as replacement players. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's very difficult to disagree with the fact that that competition has been devalued a little bit. But unfortunately, I think that that's just a side effect of a really condensed structure. Obviously, in England, we have to be aware that you know the, the weather's not the best, so we've got to get a lot of cricket into six months. So it's not like we can play all year round, like maybe some other countries. Um, the county championship structure, I said earlier, only changed a bit because of COVID, but it's back to the two divisions structure from next season. Thank you, bagging on that. Would you say the Test team of 2010 to 13, you know, that one in Australia, that one in India. Was that also a similar case of, you know, sort of golden generation all just coming together? Um, Because considering that we really haven't seen a lot of structural changes, it seems like it was just, you know, that timing where a number of really solid players came together and maybe India and Australia were both in transition. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a decent argument, I think. You know, you look at that top six of, so the the sort of early parts of the 2010s who would get in that out of the current group Joe Root that's it no one else would mm. 
Uh, that top six was arguably the best in, in world cricket, uh, test cricket at that time when, you know, if even if you got two or three of them out cheaply, you still got to roll through another another three or four of them. That that's so so the chances are that you know you're looking at bell curves of expected outcomes, etc. You know, the chances are that a couple of them out of those six will will score big scores. So so yeah, that was maybe a golden generation of Red Bull players. And that happens in sport because it's it can be quite cyclical sometimes. And um teams go through phases of having good generations of players and and maybe sometimes support generations of players. And that's okay, that's sport. The problem is, is that is sometimes people react on those cyclical factors when they think that there's other reasons for that, which is kind of, I think, what we're seeing maybe now a little bit in the discussion about rebel cricket in England. And that's, and that's very interesting to me because, um, you know, as a longtime Indian fan, um, you know, whenever the Indian team did poorly in tests, um, almost immediate reason would be, oh, they're focusing too much on white ball cricket or they're yeah. focused too much on the IPL. And it was amusing uh, to me this time around when um, England were losing the Ashes, you know, the second test and when they lost in the third. Um, and I, I saw a lot of comments about how this is a result of, you know, England focusing a lot on white ball cricket over the last few years and that they basically sacrificed long form for success um, in the 50 over and the 20 over. Uh, do you think there is a way to maintain the balance uh, with, with regards to English cricket specifically? Can they find a way to balance all three, uh, all three formats at the international level? That, that's so tricky because we've seen even 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 the coaches, it's, it's a real struggle, especially in this bubble life and with COVID around and stuff. It's very difficult to even coach three formats at the same time, let alone play play in those formats. But I think there's now a reasonable argument to say that the the diversification of skills between, particularly between Red Bull and T20, but also Red Bull and White Bull, and the continuing expected diversification of those skills as well, uh, I mean that there's an argument for a Red Bull only school aside. Right. And if you look at if you look at the current squad, there's maybe not that many players who you would be distraught about that. So you could you could let Bearstar Butler play white ball cricket. You would think that folks and Pope or folks and Lawrence are not a massive downgrade, if a downgrade at all, on, on Butler and Bearstar in Test cricket. So so that wouldn't be a problem. And you can go into Butler and Best and say, you know what, right? You guys are elite at, at, at white ball cricket. Go and win this country tournaments go and play in the IPL go and play in a couple of other leagues hone your skills win tournaments and win tournaments for us because they're, they're not ever going to be an amazing test match player I think that's pretty there's no there's no evidence to suggest that they're going to end up averaging 40 plus in their career so yeah. you might as well let them excel at what they're really good at and and reduce their workload at the same time how much of this is also the result of just um, English cricket? And I think it goes the other way around too, but there seems to be the almost this obsession with the ashes. You know, everything is in preparation for the ashes. Everything yeah. is about what happens next. And I'm already seeing reports of, okay, how do we, you know, reclaim the ashes, even though that's probably a long way away. Um, how, much, how much of that is hampering, um, you know, just English cricket's, development or just progress in finding the right people uh, for the test side? I, I think that you're absolutely right in terms of saying that there is this focus 
on the ashes. And, and, and it clearly is a thing, be it from the media or, or inside, inside the England setup. I think, to be genuine, genuine truthful, I'm of a similar mindset to Stuart Broad. I think that focusing on a series two or four years away is absolutely absurd. Uh, and that England would be better served winning matches and picking the team capable of winning matches at the given point in time rather than worrying about a series that they pretty much always lose anyway. Right. <laughs> it, 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 was an, it, it is an astonishing fact that in the last how many ever decades, England has only won one series down under. Yeah. I, that's, that's mind-boggling. I can't, I can't really make sense of why that record is so stark. Well, you've traditionally got a worse team going away to a better team in an intimidating atmosphere, in unfamiliar conditions, very different conditions. And being away from home for a long period of time. And all these these things create this environment where it's very, very difficult to succeed. So you look at Test cricket, obviously we've seen a few shocks this year already, but on the whole, if you're the better team and you're at home, you're an overwhelming favourite to win that match. And also right. it's a best of five, five series. So the longer the series, the more chance you've got of a true result in terms of who wins the series. Whereas if it's like a one or two match series, so two or three match series, you might get more shock series results. The longer the series, the more chance you've got of a true result. So when you've got a, a generally worse team going away to a better team, don't be surprised if there's a bad run of series results for a long, many, many years long period of time well let's talk a little about little little bit about the leadership at the higher level uh, i know they're easy targets you know already you know ashley giles joe root chris silver silverwood <laughs> everyone has been targeted um and there's been talk about should we change the captain probably it's time to change the coach gary kirsten is suddenly like i'm interested in the coaching job right in the middle of an ongoing series so there seems to be un well, I should say there seems to be a lack of confidence in the leadership at the moment. Um, do you, as a fan and as someone who's observing English cricket, do you think any of any changes at the top will make significant difference? Um, I'm not too sure, to be honest with you. First, first of all, I, I'll say now, I'm pretty uncomfortable with a guy saying that they're interested in a job which actually isn't available at that point in time, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, it was a bit weird. Um, I think Ashley Giles has been in interviews saying, you know, you can you can sack people, but ultimately the, the situation is not going to change. Right. Um, I do think that the I, I'm a bit uncomfortable with Silverwood's role generally because I don't believe, and I've said this since it started, I don't believe that the the head coach should also select the team for a number of reasons. First of all, they're not as they're not accountable. I don't think because they've got to answer to themselves, basically. They're marking their own homework to some degree, you know? Right. Um, and also, say you're, say you're a batter and you're worried about, you've got a you think you've got a technical problem, right? You can't go to your head coach and tell him because he's going to pick the team at the same time. Right, yeah. So that's, it's really tricky. And not, not just that, I mean, Silverwood is coaching three formats, right? He's away from home, you know, for a lot of the year, you would say. 
how much time does he have to scout domestic players? Mm. And you can turn around and say, well, maybe he's got all these people helping him. But that's not, that's not, he's not the best person to pick squads. He's not right. the best person to pick teams. And I think that we've seen, especially over the last year or so, some pretty strange decisions, not just with selection, but also strategy in general, toss decision, in-game strategy. For example, there was the, the, the game against New Zealand last year where they just, they didn't chase three a bit and over. They didn't want to chase it, just shut up, shut up. Just things like that. You're basically giving away all your equity in the match to take away a little bit of New Zealand's equity, but increase the draw chances. And you're, you know, right. you're at home, you should be doing things like that. And, and there's some, some strange strategic decisions. So I think that there's, there's got to be more accountability for Silverwood. I think he's, I mean, I would be genuinely amazed if he kept his job. Not because I don't like the guy, but because coaches don't tend to, to survive heavy right. defeat in matches and a set, what was effectively several series losses in the preceding series against New Zealand. I know India wasn't completed, but I think it was pretty likely that India were going to win the series before the last match. Mm. Um, um, so results have not been good. Coaches don't tend to survive Ashes losses away from home, and especially Ashes demolitions. The interview that he gave after the 68 all out was interesting. Um, so um, I'd be surprised if he kept his job. I think the vast, I wouldn't necessarily lose Root as captain because while I'm not convinced he's a particularly high level captain. I'm not sure there's anyone else who's better to do the job. And, I, and on point of captains, generally, I'm not sure there's that many high-level captains full stop. You know, guys like Doni, for example, the outliers. A bit like, he, he's right. the captaincy equivalent of Darren Stevens, you know, the outlier guy who's just unreal, you know. Right. Uh, 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 um, the vast majority of them don't exist. You've got no idea who, who would be captain in the absence of I mean, of I would so, think you know, Ben Stokes in a, in a normal world, but I think he just has too many things on his plate already. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. So as far as selection processes, I, I, I'm, I don't know if chairman of selectors is the answer, which obviously Ed Smith was doing before, but I don't think that the coach should have a massive say in the picking of the squad or talent identification in general. Right, and it's it's one of those situations where even which even Pakistan was in, with, where they had Mizbah as both coach and selector, and and they walked back from that fairly quickly. And, and yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I that um, that just puts them puts players and the coach at a in a delicate situation. So, um, I guess one of the other pieces that uh, you made in your uh, in your recent. Uh, um, Substack uh, article was, you know, around incentives for the English county counties, and I think that's a great point. I don't think any structure around any cricketing or even football structure around the world has that right now. But I guess I'm trying to understand how would that make counties do things differently from an under 19 level, you know, from a younger age. Like I understand. Um, more investment and more match practice with somebody who has the raw elements, as you were saying. Um, yeah. But does that really make difference at the age group level? Well, so you, you look at comparing football to cricket again, which I think we've done a couple of times on, on this show, is that if you're a football team and you're, you're looking to develop, say, under-19 players, you've got two massive incentives. First of all, 
if you develop them and they become really good, you're going to play them and they're going to play for you every week as long as they're not injured. Because England or whoever their nationality is, is not going to take them from you because it's generally not calendar clashes. And two, they have what is now a market asset. So if you're developing a 19-year-old and they come go on and play for England, they're going to be worth like 50 million pounds or more. So you've got a, a saleable asset there, there and then. So you've got ROI, return investment, in two different areas, but both of them are obviously really positive. Now, in cricket, effectively, you don't really have either. So you, if, 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 you're, if you develop a player who plays for England, you're never going to see him again. So what's the point? Right. As I said earlier, you might as well have a, a team of players who are almost good enough to play for England. And you don't really get a financial reward for doing that. Either there's some small rewards, but it's not big. So it's time now, I think, for, for England to, to focus on that clear kind of conf- conflict, if you like, in terms of what county's objectives are and what the national team's objectives are, and look to redress that balance to some degree. So you ask what, what that would make counties do differently, for example. It would change the type of player, I think, who they bring into their academies to start with, and in particular, who they give rookie professional contracts to. So when you leave the academy, you get, you get a rookie contract or you go and look for a job. Or you play club cricket or whatever yeah, in, a, in the, the lower leagues. Um, so we talked earlier about that, the 90 mile an hour wild guy who doesn't have any control versus the 75, 80 mile an hour guy who has control, takes out of wickets in English conditions, but probably will never be able to step up to test level. And you can make a similar comparison to like Red Bull batters as well. So a county might want a multi-format player rather than a guy who scores 50 or 60 or 200 balls and then can't play white ball cricket because they don't have the shots or the intent because they're only getting ROI in, in one format rather than three. And so, again, producing Red Bull-only players is probably not that financially viable for counties. So the ECB have got to make it financially viable, otherwise the same situation is going to manifest itself time and time again. Right. So I guess what, what I'm ultimately trying to say is, is that what's in the county's best interest, so the vast majorities will focus on, on winning matches and focusing on short-term results, because ultimately, if you don't do that, you're probably going to get sacked um, as a coach. It might not be in the national team's best interest, which would probably be more focused towards the counties developing players for the long term. And so therefore, those counties need better incentives to align with England's best interest, ultimately. So um, I know we've talked a lot about the structure of English cricket, but one of the other things that's been, um, you know, uh, happening over the last um, year, just, you know, the whole Azim Rafiq um, um, situation where, you know, details around that have been unfolding, where whether it was, you know, forcing him to drink wine at 15 or the use of uh, racial slurs, and obviously it's all very disturbing. Um, Again, this is not necessarily an easy question for English cricket to fix. Um, so I, I don't really know um, how you know you and I can and can contribute to that. But just curious on your thoughts on um, how can there be some more accountability from an English cricket perspective? And uh, it almost feels like it's sort of a wider societal problem rather than just related to you know the the, the game. So um, curious on your thoughts on both. Yeah, I mean, obviously what came out of those hearings is 
is indicative of issues inside the sport and, and probably, as you say, a lot of society as well. Um, as far as the dressing room environment and that dressing room culture that people talk about a lot, I, I genuinely don't know a lot about it because I haven't been in that many in England. And when I have been, I can't recall any issues myself. So I've not been exposed to that side of things, but it's, it's, it's horrible to see people go through this in, in a sport like cricket, a sport that everyone should love and be inclusive for everybody. Um, regarding the solution, I mean, like you say, it's difficult to really come up with the specifics, but I think, I think there's got to be better education inside the sport and in society generally. And I think that it's important that people speak up when there's an issue and let others know that their behaviour is unacceptable if that, if that is the case. And there's just got to be that greater level of accountability and, and the consequences as well, which is you know, consequences for, for that behaviour has got to be in place as well. Obviously, that's a long-term process. All of that's a long-term process, but it's got to take place to make cricket a better sport. Is there any concerted effort um, by English cricket, and not, I'm not necessarily speaking about the board itself, but by the clubs or by other groups to invest in reaching out to communities um, to just kind of increase engagement and participation at even a younger age level? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. Um, I think that there's several counties who are trying to, to really, really do that. Um, but ultimately, there's a big problem in, in, in cricket in that area. And one guy I follow on, on Twitter, a guy called Tom Brown, who's at Tom Brown 1593 on Twitter. And he's done a PhD, which outlines ethnic and relative wealth representations within performance cricket in England and Wales. And mm. some of his findings are pretty staggering. So um, if you're interested in that, we'd definitely, definitely have a look at the work that he's done. Uh, and it's all published on Twitter as well. So no, that's representative of a lot of the issues in cricket, full stop, I think. Okay. Well, Dan, really appreciate your time. And before we, you know, kind of wrap this up, um, I want to end on a more optimistic <laughs> or hopeful uh, way, um, you know, in your experience uh, as an analyst, you know, for, for English cricket fans, what can mm -hmm. they look forward to? What can they be? kind of optimistic about in the coming months do you see any players out there who you think is you know got it to be the next you know you know ben stokes joe root or Stuart broad you know someone who can bring joy to uh the faces of english fans uh honestly in red ball cricket i think it could well get worse before it gets better okay um we i don't were going see... for optimistic but <laughs> yeah sorry uh long, maybe some long-term optimism um okay uh so what I'm trying to say is I think that there's not anyone beating down the door saying that they should be getting picked when you know, un they're not picked unjustly in rebel cricket. So, you know, for example, in, in Pakistan, they had a Fawad Alam who was just scoring runs, so many runs in domestic cricket, but never never got a chance in international cricket for years. England don't have a Fawad Alam. Right. They, they, there's no one like that. Probably the closest thing to him volume of runs wise would be Oli Pope but obviously he's got opportunities um, so that's why I think it could get worse before it gets better you asked me for some optimistic take uh, we'll <laughs> go with the T20 World Cup because <laughs> right. uh, obviously, obviously England yeah. I mean, that's, it's difficult because 
in a knockout competition, you know, you can be a good team and still lose. You can still be favourite. one bad lose. day, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You, you just both teams play well, but you you go out, you go you you're on the wrong end of some some high variance situations, and right. uh, yeah. So the T Twenty World Cup and probably some de- a decent level of white ball dominance generally would would be on the menu. Um, but we also have to be aware that I think nine out of it, the eleven players who played for England in the World Cup or the regular eleven are over thirty years old now. So hmm. eventually, there's going to be a bit of a change change in that area as well. But there's so many good young players coming through that the, um, I wouldn't worry about that too much. Okay. So the theme that I'm getting at is don't don't worry too much about you know the test uh, the struggles in the tests. Just look on the bright side. That is the limited overs. There might still be a good couple of years left um, before it you know another period of transition kickstarts. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. I know it's it isn't always. Uh, great to talk about uh, the team when they aren't doing too well, but hey, that's that's the only way we can figure out you know what can be done, and hopefully you know people who are listening to this are you know the ones who can make some difference, and hopefully they got something out of this. But thank you so much for your time, and as always, you're welcome to come back anytime to talk about English cricket. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And that's a wrap on the first episode of The Last Wicket for 2022. Thanks again to Dan for coming on, and do check him out on Twitter at SA Advantage. To our loyal followers, thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you some exciting episodes this year, uh, episodes that I promise you won't want to miss. Once again, check out our nomination at sportspodcastawards.com and give us a vote if you are so inclined. All right. If you enjoy our show, do let a friend know, rate and subscribe to this podcast, follow us on your social media feeds, and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening. And from all of us here at The Last Wicked, stay safe and stay healthy.